I want to invite everyone uh, everywhere around the world and here in San Jose uh, to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. Uh, I was on my way to lunch with my son this week, and I just had a really good laugh at this license plate. Um, In case you can't read it, it says, do you follow Jesus this close? I was only doing 35, so don't judge. But it was particularly funny because of the fact that I had just preached a sermon about closing our distance, losing the distance between us and Jesus. And I would say this, don't lose heart in actively losing your distance to Jesus. This will take ongoing effort and ongoing work. Don't lose heart in it. Every ounce of intentionality and effort that you put toward this is worth it. So keep going. So here's today. Here's where we find ourselves this morning. I asked this morning a couple of questions. How do you handle your critics? How do you handle your critics? And then here's a follow-up question. How were you taught to handle your critics? Is there a gap there? Is there a gap between what you were taught and how you actually handle them? And then here's a third, a third question. It's a follow-up to the follow-up. It's like PSS. It's how do you want to handle your critics? How is it that you desire to handle your critics? Let me just put sort of a a little fun thought experiment in your mind. What animal, fish, insect, or bird most describes you when you are criticized? If you could pick sort of anything from the animal kingdom, what would you pick to describe, this is what I'm like when I'm criticized. Maybe you're a mockingbird. Maybe you are quick to criticize back. Maybe your skin is as thick as a rhino. And you could just take criticism all day long. Criticism can be positive or negative. Isn't that right? But I'm going to talk today. We're going to to shift the, the energy and the focus a little bit to the darker cousins of criticism, which is mocking and taunting. Criticism can be positive or negative. Mocking and taunting, almost never can we think of situations where we think, oh, that's a good thing that that's going on. You know, speaking of animals, our family loves the zoo. The zoo, like, sort of universally brings out something in children and adults alike, and that is the taunting of animals. I think I blame some of this on the internet, like, we're used to being fed and movement, and so if an animal's just sitting there in the heat of the day, people are like, hey, do something, you know, and so they're banging on the glass, they're shouting, they're doing things. We're good parents, um, and so what we do is we try to teach our kids, no, don't do that, don't taunt the animals, There's something in our sin nature that wants to taunt the animals. We say respect the animals. Don't tap on the glass. Don't throw things at them. Don't shout at them. If you ever notice, next time you go to the zoo, or you could try this experiment on your pets at home, um, but notice that words and snarky faces don't really get a rise out of animals, right? Um, And and they don't stir up the the animal kingdom. Um, So so think about this. Uh, You're at the uh, elephant exhibit, and you're like, you're fat, you need to go on a diet, right? Actually, say it in an even-keeled voice, right? You're fat, you need to go on a diet. You're overweight, shame on you. What does the animal do? Elephants just, they're like elephants, they don't care. What about you're at a picnic and ants are ruining your picnic, and you start talking to the ants? You're nothing but a nuisance. You'll never amount to anything except bugging people and bothering people. Why do you always bother picnics? What do ants do? They just go about being like ants, right? Why? Because words and snarky faces and the rolling of the eyes, that doesn't affect the animal kingdom like it does the human kingdom. Now, here's a little hint. 
Okay, here's a little hint for you. This is not because we are somehow a more highly evolved ant or elephant, right, or anything else. It is that that is animal kind and we are humankind. God has endowed humankind with logic, with reason, with emotion. We are imprinted with the characteristics of God himself. And so those very words that would hurt an elephant or an ant cut us deep, don't they? Um, Christmas Day 2007 revealed this, that taunting can be absolutely deadly. On Christmas Day 2007, you may remember this if you live locally, if you were around, and if you're members of the zoo with small children like we are, there was a female Siberian tiger named Tatiana. Tatiana got out of her cage on Christmas Day at the San Francisco Zoo and killed a 17-year-old named Carlos. Carlos had two friends with him. They were brothers. Um, and he went and mauled these two brothers before he was fatally shot by people who came in and, and dealt with the animal. Uh, now, here's, here's a case for not taunting and drinking. You've heard of not drinking and driving. Don't drink and taunt. Okay? The, the father acknowledged that his sons, the ones that were mauled, were, were drunk at the time. They had been drinking. Um, taunting um, and scoffing are rampant still. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, we just... We just Breathe in this. Scoffing, taunting, and mocking are rampant still. And I would say this, they're also still incredibly deadly. If not physically, like a tiger mauling a 17-year-old kid, um, for sure spiritually, for sure relationally, right? Taunting can be deadly. We probably could all tell stories of how taunting and mocking um, destroyed a relationship destroyed the soul of someone. Let me take two big areas that, that are sort of massive on the American landscape and just, just think with me for a minute about taunting, okay? Let's go to sports. Is trash talking a, a, a part of sports? Yes, it's a huge part of it. Um, how about the signs from the, from the fans that come to the games, right? That's a huge part of it. In fact, talk radio and talk shows and blogs and vlogs, they just talk about this nonstop right? This taunting that constantly goes on in sports. In fact, I can think of at least two sports that if you take away taunting, the entire sport disappears. Professional wrestling, and I use that term loosely, right? WWE type stuff, um, and bullfighting. Like you take taunting away and those things like, poof, there is no sport. There's, there's nothing to it. I was watching football last week with my, my 10-year-old daughter, Kaya, and she, uh, she said, dad, do the players actually ever take this stuff personally and get really mad at each other? And I go, well, sure they do, sweetie. Sometimes there's fights. And literally why I'm saying that, a fight breaks out on my TV screen. And I'm like, there you go, exhibit A. Like, here's people fighting because something was said or done or whatever. So that's sports. How about politics? Any taunting in politics? Mocking? Scoffing? Uh, Listen, as the leader goes, so the team goes. Speed of the leader, speed of the team. You've heard of that before? Speed of the leader, speed of the team. I don't care who you're voting for, who you're not voting for, what your take is on 2020, but let me just say this. Trump is a brash name-caller. He's a bruiser. That's his personality. Biden is smug and sneaky. He's very political. He's been at this a long time. If I could just put it down to one word, I would say this. Trump is a taunter, and Biden is a scoffer. We had a lovely date Thursday night, my wife and I. We, we, we got away, uh, got a little bit of dinner, uh, went for a little hike, um, and the kids didn't kill each other. It was awesome. Good job, kids. They're in the front row. Um, and we came home, and we thought, do we want to end our date night with the presidential debate? 
Like soaking? And we're like, no, not at all. Like, here's how much temptation that was. Zero. So I actually just started watching a little bit yesterday. And, and um, if you just watch the thing on mute, it, just watch the faces, right? I mean, it's, it's exactly like my children when I'm talking to them and, and they're not allowed to speak. By the way, anyone else getting the idea that muting the mic of other people in the family would be a great tool? Man, that would be so cool. Like there's some outside source that just muted people. Of course, I'd probably get muted a bunch too. Um, so in all of that, here's what I would say. Uh, speed of the leader, speed of the team, by the way. The, the followers of Biden, the followers of Trump. Man, aren't you glad that we're for Jesus? Aren't you glad Jesus is our leader? We don't take our cues from, from culture, nor are we servants of a party, nor are we servants of a team. We're servants of Jesus, so we take our cues from him. That's who we learn from. That's who we are led by. The millionaires and talking heads on screens are not your role models, okay? Present company included. You should watch me as I follow Christ. But A, I'm not a millionaire. B, I'm preaching the Bible. So, um, but these people that we see, don't take your cues from them. There are so many things being requoted and retweeted and rebrought up that shouldn't be. They shouldn't have been brought up in the first place. Jesus is our Lord, and he has shown us the way and empowered us to walk in his footsteps. We get to walk the Jesus way, not just because he showed us how to do it and said, good luck, but he showed us how to do it and said, I'm with you always. Here's my spirit, my helper. I will dwell with you and walk with you every step of the way. I will not leave you or forsake you. So that's what we're going to look at today. Today's text, by the way, is as relevant as tomorrow's interactions. You will have interactions tomorrow that I bet if you are paying attention, even halfway, you will see an overlay and say, yep, there it is. There it is. This is what this, is what this ancient text is talking about. When it says the Bible's uh, living, uh, active and living uh, and alive like a sword, man, this is what it's talking about. You will be tested in this. Christian, hear me. If you're a Christian already, already a devoted follower of Jesus, you live out your convictions, you walk as Jesus taught you to do, you will be teased and taunted. It's just a given. Aristotle said this, and I don't go around like just having all these Aristotle quotes. I Google this, but it's pretty powerful. Aristotle said this, to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. You want to avoid criticism at all costs? You think taunting's the worst thing in life? There's your life goal right there. Say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. Most of us think that's a terrible life plan. So we're like, okay, I'll come with the price tag of being mocked. If handling mocking and criticism is hard when you might be right, think about this for a second. It is like double black diamond difficult when you know that you know you're right. You know what I'm talking about? On a test, you can know the answer, but then you can know that you know the answer, right? Knowing that you know the answer means this. There is no chance of this being wrong. Knowing the test, you go, how'd you do? I think I did pretty good. How'd you do on these three questions? Oh, those I aced. I absolutely know that I know I was right on those things. So as we read the text today, think about this. Jesus knows that he knows he is right in what he says and what he does. He is walking the perfect path, and he's being scoffed, lied about, mocked, and taunted. Okay? So just keep, keep that in mind. We don't just look to Jesus in this. Looking to Jesus is, God, help me. People at work are teasing me. God, help me. My roommate won't stop. God, help me. My spouse mocks my faith. We don't just look to Jesus for strength. We should. But we also look carefully at him. 
Again, why are we doing a deep dive in Luke? Why do we stay in the scriptures? Why do I plead with you, church? Keep going back to the words in red. Keep going back to Jesus. Because we don't just look to him for help. We look at him carefully for his example. I was blown away by a passage that is so familiar to me and I think will be so familiar to you just because I looked carefully at him. Why? Because I had a deadline to preach this. I prayed, God, give me, give me your word for the people today. And so I've been wrestling with this for a while. You wrestle with scripture, things come out of it. We watch Jesus as a model of grace under fire, grace under criticism, a deep abiding peace in the midst of the most unimaginable storm. I put it this way, he has lamb to the slaughter calm while possessing lion to the kill power. Jesus uniquely has lamb to the slaughter calm going on, all the while possessing lion to the kill power, sitting right there in his possession. So how does he do it? I summed it up with our, with our title picture this, this morning, which is closed mouth, open heart. So another week, another rejection endured by Jesus. This time, not from a disciple. Remember last week it was Peter denying him three times. This time it is from his detractors. You know, mockery of Jesus was alive and well then, and it is thriving today. Mocking Jesus is thriving. In fact, he is perpetually mocked and taunted by people. This is rampant and ongoing in any culture that you look at. So culture, in our current culture, shows and movies alike have Christian characters in them. Are they portrayed accurately and favorably? Most often, no. I'm not even going to dignify the shows and movies that I research to kind of like jog my memory. But just think about the Christian characters that you see in movies and TVs. Um, they're, they're horribly negative stereotypes. I won't get into the details because children are present. But when I was in youth group, I remember the last Temptation of Christ movie came out. Super controversial. Our youth group from Los Gatos Christian, we went and protested at it. And it was just, it was this huge ordeal, like just really misrepresenting our Lord and Savior. There's a movie that's uh, trying to be put out now called The First Temptation of Christ. It's disgusting. Filled with misinformation. And once again, it's just in a mocking, not just irreverent, but scandalously scoffing tone. Isn't there a huge hypocrisy here? While, dis, while, while denouncing Islamophobia, homophobia, xenophobia, there is open season on Jesus year-round. This is just true. Now, as I sort of think about this, um, uh, you know, in, in fact, if we were to use the same vernacular for what we're talking about, we would say this, that, that the writers and producers in Hollywood, I think, have sort of a, a Christophobic uh, men- mentality right? If, if that's, if that's the, what it really is, a, a fear of, then that's what's happening. The reason for the ridicule is super obvious, because retaliation in violence uh, and even in kind is not tolerated by the, by the Jesus community. Why? Because it's not the Jesus way, right? There are other cultures, other religions, other uh, sects that if you do that, you put your life in danger immediately. And yet that's not the Jesus way. It never has been. Go and study church history. Uh, it's, it's exactly how it has always been. The results, though, of this are actually incredible. Let me flip the script on the, this and sort of reframe it. What this does for the Christian is sharpen and clarify who we are. 
I'm going to show you that from the text today, okay? The fruit that comes from Christians being mocked and taunted and teased for their faith does something really, really incredible. Here's what it does for those doing the mocking and taunting and all of that. It is an opportunity to reveal a spiritual world that is lost on people enslaved to a physical world. It is an opportunity, as the scriptures say, to be like a star shining in the midst of a dark and crooked generation. Is it not? I mean, this is our opportunity. So instead of bemoaning it, let's, let's look at these kinds of trials and figure out how we can walk forward in it with joy. All right, so longstanding abuse, mocking, misinformation about our Lord is nothing new. It is the result of the natural state that every one of us is born into. Ephesians 2 calls it this, following the prince of the powers of this world. That is how we are born. That is what we are born into. That is our natural tongue. So Luke chapter 22. All of this mocking, by the way, and predictions of mocking today in 2020 has been predicted and promised to us and has lived in your Bible for as long as any family member you can think of. It's been in there longer. It's been there for a long, long time. In Genesis, we see the serpent mocking the childlike faith of Eve, right? Did God really say? Right? It's a taunt. It's a mock. It's a tease. How about on the first Christmas with the arrival of Jesus? He's marginalized. From the outset, Jesus is marginalized. We've got a barn for you. Does that work? Let's move on. Jesus uh, warns of mocking and mistreatment for everyone who chooses to follow him. I'll read some of those verses later. The apostle Peter predicts what we are now living. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 3. It says this. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts or desires. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. I mean, don't we hear these exact mocks and taunts? It's exactly what it is. Go do your own study and see how to answer that. But it's interesting that the mere presence of mockers actually helps validate what they are mocking. Namely, that Jesus Christ is coming back, and secondly, that God's word is certain and true and supernatural. How do they know back then? So even the presence of mockers in 2020 is like, yep, that's what the Bible said would happen. All right. Let me just say this uh, before I read today's text. I want you to get this word down. I think I got this from Eugene Peterson. I'm not sure, but I heard it and I loved it. It just stayed with me. Minorities from the margins. Minorities from the margins. This is what it means to be a Christian and influence and introduce this revolution that God is introducing called the kingdom of God. Read through the gospels, it's what we've been seeing. Minorities from the margins. If we get that in our head that we'll, we'll kind of always be a minority, true Christians that name the name of Christ, like just do what disciples say, they hear and do what Jesus says, always be in the, in the, in the minority. And we'll always be marginalized like Jesus was could throw in there misunderstood. There's a lot of misunderstanding that comes with, with, with being a Christian. But minorities from the margins. This is the Jesus way. It's the life you are being invited into. It is the way that God redeems wayward sinners. So Luke shows us a world that we understand and relate to every single day. Even when we're sheltered in place, even when we don't see people physically, we see it virtually all over the place. We see and relate to this world that Luke paints for us. He shows us that not all mocking is the same. 
We're going to see sort of two sides of it um, today. Jesus endures sort of two very different types of mocking and scandal in the span of one relatively short night. On the one hand, you have the ruffian, everyday, man-on-the-street, blue-collar type of mocking. Okay, we're going to see that. But then there's also sort of the sneakier, um, sophisticated, philosophical, religious, legal side that goes on. There's different kinds of mocking, and we're going to sort of see this both. One group wears the uniform of a worker and takes the orders. The other one wears the suits and gives the orders. Okay, that's who we're going to see. That's who's sitting in our text today. Uh, In your handout, by the way, if you haven't clicked below here right here, is your sermon notes. So click on that, open it, and, and, and be kind of following along. Um, but living in your notes this morning is this passage out of Proverbs. This blew me away. This is all three groups we're going to look at living side by side in the Proverbs. Okay? Here it is. If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. That is the white-collar counsel that we're going to see today. Bloodthirsty men, verse 10, hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. That's the blue-collar guards that we're going to look at. Look at verse 11. Jesus shows up. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. White-collar, blue-collar, Jesus. That's what we see right here in the Proverbs, and we're going to see it sort of lived out. So, uh, verse 63, the first we're going to look at, at blue-collar rejection, okay? Verse 63 says this, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him, and they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Luke sort of keeps this pretty short. Many other things is shorthand for this. It's not worth really repeating here due to the profane and disgusting nature of it all. This took place over a long period of time. We could sort of only imagine what it is. Matthew and Mark helped fill in some of this with a a mocking crown jammed into his head with a purple robe uh, put on him as he's being beat. This is blue-collar taunting, right? This is locker room jeering that turns physical. This is what blue-collar, if you're built with muscle and and bully and brat, this is what you do. It's the varsity senior making sport out of the scrawny freshman. Here's what's always true. The unholy always disdains the holy. Hates it. Dark hates the light. The blue-collar methods are on display. Name-calling, childish, brutal. Some really never outgrow the mob mentality that can start on the playground. Maybe you were on the playground and you were the recipient of this. Maybe you were the one dishing this out. Maybe you cautiously sat on the sidelines trying not to incite any attention at all. But there's a little mob mentality that forms with children. It begins on the playground. But the adult version is dorm rooms, break rooms, and locker rooms. Right? Bullies, some bullies never grow up. They're the blue-collar mockers. They just are brutish in how they are. They, They are severely cruel. Here's what's true, though. Even the most mountainous, brutal, barbaric type of person you can imagine, they know it's wrong. They bear the image of God. They have a conscience. They know this is wrong. Um, Think about this. Football players know that taunting is a penalty. Unsportsmanlike conduct is going to cost their team. So even the big, the big trash-talking, mountain-of-a-man person who's doing this and, and wanting to do it in, in, in kind will hold back. Jesus' non-violent response stands out here. 
but maybe even more might be his nonverbal reaction. Ever try to stay quiet when you know that you know that you're right and people are picking on you? People are spreading lies about you? His nonviolence stands out, but how about the fact that he's nonverbal in these things? Jesus kept quiet when shouted at. When he was beaten, he was peaceable. Didn't mean that it didn't hurt, didn't mean that he didn't react like a human being, he was fully human. In this dark night of the soul for Jesus, where he is being systematically broken down and rejected layer after layer after layer, we already know at last he will be stripped bare, left all alone on a barren cross. That's where this is all heading. Remember, he appeals to the Father, take this cup from me. What's he get? No. And then he gets betrayed by Judas, and then he gets rejected and denied by Jesus. And now he's being denied by guards who should be holding him safely until he can stand trial, being mistreated. We're going to look at this for a couple of more weeks. But now we move on to the white-collar, sophisticated version of taunting. It's the morning time, the light of day, bringing absolutely no end of the darkness for, for, for Jesus as he walks this road. So white-collar rejection. What does this look like? Well, this is injustice from the intellectuals. Look at verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chiefs and priests and scribes, and they led him away to the council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, you are the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So here we have the white-collar version of mocking. It's sort of like a two-for-one because while the, the uh, you know, mockery of Jesus and mockery of justice is happening all at the same time, right? That's what's happening. This council was made up of the chief priests and scribes. It's kind of like the Supreme Court of Israel. This is a theocracy, right? And so this is the Supreme Court. This is the highest ruling deciders in the land. The Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin is trying to ratify their condemnation of Jesus just after dawn to make their actions legal. I won't get into all the intricacies of that, but it's very strategic. It's very planned. It's very shrewd on their part as to why they're doing it the way that they're doing it. Mom was right all along. Two wrongs don't make a right. No matter how much you try to cram and make this legal, no matter how much you try to pretend you're following your own written rules, it doesn't make it right. And that's what's happening here. This little verbal exchange that has gone on um, is Jesus being his own defense lawyer. What Jesus does is this. He answers really shrewdly, he answers very precisely, and he answers 100% honestly. He is revealing plainly who he is, while at the same time, watch this, he is forcing responsibility on those who are seeking to condemn him. Jesus is not playing into their hands, and he doesn't play into their hands by dodging or by, or by a dishonest answer. He does it very, very shrewdly. When he's asked if he is the Christ, he says, if I tell you, you won't believe, um, and, and if I ask you, you will not answer. What is this all about? Think about this. Remember, Jesus has been teaching in the temple for the whole week. Who's been coming to him asking him if he's the Christ? These guys. Remember, they would send one after another. Jesus won. Jesus won. Here, you try. Mikey likes it. Like, you just keep shoving the younger brothers. Like, someone trap him in something. 
They've already been down this road. Jesus has already won. These same pseudo-authorities have already come and asked these same questions. They are not seeking an answer. They are not seeking truth. Jesus had already silenced them. There are times that your conversations will, be, will, will come to an impasse. There comes a time when, um, there comes a point when claiming or not claiming to be the Messiah as his identity was pointless. I used to work at a bank. I worked at a bank for a lot of years, Bank of the West. That was how I put myself through college. And um, I was working on my, my degree in Bible and theology. And I made friends with this woman named Diane. Diane was a Jehovah's Witness. I was a Christian who witnessed. So we got along famously. We had lots to talk about. I mean, every day this woman came in, we talked about Jesus and God and the Bible and theology and ethics and you name it. Man, we just went at it. Me and Diane would talk back and forth. And there came a point where I said, you know what? Um, I've actually been really thankful for your Watchtower magazines and the literature you've given. It's given me lots of ways to understand and try to get, you know, gain an understanding of what a Jehovah's Witness believes. But I don't need any more. Like, if you give it to me, I will just throw it away. And there came a point in our relationship where we decided, you know what? Let's agree to just love each other as friends. Let's just agree to love each other the way that we feel convicted in our beliefs that we'll just love each other as friends and, and we'll, just, we'll just agree that we're probably not going to convince the other one. All right? He was like, I'm probably not budging and you're probably not budging. Is that true? Yep. We were at an impasse. Do you know that me and Diane were able to carry on a friendly relationship? I mean, it was a banker relationship, so it lasted, you know, in little 20-second spurts. But there, was a, but there was goodwill between us as we ended that conversation. We had come to an impasse. It was no longer worth just having that one driving thing be the thing that we would, would argue about. Here's what Jesus does in this conversation. He ups the ante by introducing the term son of man into this conversation. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? That's what was being asked. He introduces the term son of man, a title which leads them to an obvious conclusion that Jesus is undeniably claiming to be divine, to be God. Son of man was Jesus' favorite title for himself if you count the number of times he refers to himself. It's kind of interesting because um, it's actually sort of a um, a subtle way of being really humble and sort of back in the background. Everyone's looking for Messiah, right? It's like president. It's this title. And Jesus is going a little bit deeper. He's not being dishonest about himself, but he would say the son of man, the son of man, the son of man. Well, the son of man passage in Daniel, just listen to it. I have it written down in your notes, so you can go look at it later. But here's what it said. Listen carefully. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now listen to this. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus is, saying, is being asked, are you the Christ, are you the Messiah? He says, he introduces this idea of being the son of man. This was the unmistakable declaration in this context that Jesus is claiming to be the eternal ruling God. A claim that demands the title of blasphemer and heretic, unless it's true. If it's true, it demands that you fall down and worship at Jesus. If it's not true, you carry out the law to the person. 
They think they have Jesus right where they want him. And they seal it with the final question. Oh, are you the son of God then? And he says, you say that I am. Again, he doesn't shy away from the truth of his claim. right? He doesn't backpedal and say, well, that's not really what I'm saying. He leaves it. He lets it stand. And at the same time, he holds them responsible for their words. They knew clearly what they were charging Jesus with. Jesus predicted all of this would happen when Peter, did you know that before he was denying Peter, he was professing Peter? <laughs> Peter got a lot of things right, too. He had some big failures, but his, he had some big highs. Who do people say that I am? What does Peter say? Well, they answer, you know, some say John the Baptist, some say this. And then Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Ding, 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 ding. You got it right, Peter. You win. When this is happens, this is in Luke 9, 20. Peter answered, the Christ of God, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer, listen to what we're reading through, listen to what Jesus is living through right now, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Who makes up the council? The elders and the chief priests and the scribes. What are they doing? They are rejecting him. What is he calling himself? The Son of Man. Jesus predicted this. He's walking with Jesus and his, and, uh, with his disciples earlier on in their life. He says, this is what must happen first. Listen to where he goes from here. He must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus just lays out that song we just sang, right? This is the critical moment in history. The birth, life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. It's what world history hinges on. Jesus predicted it. He's living out what he promised would happen. Let me show you our logo for a moment. Jesus is not only the good doctor, like any good doctor, but he is the God doctor. Jesus reveals himself very, very plainly to who he wants. Look at this word carefully. In the word God, I will just tell it to you plainly. In the word God, the words G-O-D, or in the word good, of good doctor, G-O-D exists. G-O-D is subtly a little bit more red than the rest of the wording. This is, this is just a little metaphor. It's a little living picture of how Jesus revealed himself. In Luke chapter 9, he wasn't ready to reveal himself. He was revealing himself plainly to those who had ears to hear, namely his disciples, right? Are you the Christ? Yeah. I mean, here he says, but tell no one. Here he is later at the end of his life, and now is the time. This is what his life has been building towards. Here's what's fascinating, and I find this true as well. That if people are shown the evidence, so I just told you, look for G-O-D built into the word good. No one is good but God alone, Jesus says. That was a claim of deity that he was laying out there. Some people, when shown the evidence, go with what they already know to be true rather than what the evidence is pointing to. Okay? Now, this can be true in the religious sector. Well, my pastor said. Well, my mom said. Well, my home church back in Alabama said. Right? They just go with what they know to be true rather than looking at the evidence and where it points to. The Son of God, Jesus, does not force his way, but he lets each decide for themselves, even when they're wrong. As his followers, 
Christians, I'm talking to you now, we are able to endure the same kinds of testing that Jesus endured. And when we do, there is a harvest of good that comes from it. So here's how I want to close out my time. I want to close out my time with a couple of action things. They're written down so you can't get them wrong. Okay, there's no fill-in. We're making it easy on you. We're kind of easing you back into church, those of you who are here in person. Before getting to these five things that I want to close with, though, let me, let me say this. Aren't we quick sometimes to deal with the mockers out there and not to deal with the mocker in here? I tell you, as you read Scripture, look for the mocker in here. Look for the taunter in here. Like Peter, weep bitter tears if God shows you your own taunting of God, your own mockery of God. I would say this, that all sin in some measure is making a mockery of God's holy law, of God's holy way, of God's, of God's path to life. This is a little bit crass, but every time we sin knowingly and willingly, it's like flipping off our parents. Hey, come to Christmas. And then in word or action, literal or, or subtle, we're, we're saying no, aren't we? And we're actually making sort of a mockery of what we're being invited into. So I think all sin, in some ways, has at its core some mocking and taunting going on. The soldiers mocked King Jesus with a crown of thorns and a purple robe. I think every week we are tempted as religious people to come and mock King Jesus with worship songs and church attendance. Isn't it a mockery of King Jesus if we're singing words on a screen, if we're proclaiming the deep truths of God all the while contemplating sin, all the while knowing he's not going to be Lord of that part of my life? They may not be literal crowns of thorns. Maybe they're lyrics that we're singing sort of haphazardly. So before dealing with mockers out there, turn the light on yourself and say, God, see if there be any wicked way in me. I don't want it. A key part of your community questions this week is the very last one. Ah, Maybe it's number three. I can't remember where I put it. But it's to revisit the gospel. I think it's question three. Revisit the gospel. Jesus died for deniers. Jesus was killed for blasphemers. Jesus was, was, was murdered on behalf of those who knew better and are taunting him. This is great news, church. This is what we do with our sin. We kill the mocking in us. We kill the taunting. We reject it outright. We don't make friends with it, tolerate and excuse it, or entertain it away. We certainly don't compare it away. Well, at least I'm not. So before dealing with mockers out there, let's look at mockers in here. All right. Here are five helps for Bay Area Christians. Really, I think these are five helps for any Christians anywhere. But if you plan on staying in the Bay Area and living out your faith, brace yourself. You will be tested just like Jesus in so many of these same ways. The first is a don't. Okay, the first is don't by the sword when you are mocked not if you are mocked when you are mocked and misunderstood and mistreated and slandered and scoffed and teased do not live by the sword jesus restored when peter went right to violence what's peter's motto ready fire right there's no aim let me take this in a different direction Social media, ready, fire. What's fire? Return key or send on your phone? 
I think many people are living by ready fire and naming the name of Jesus, and Jesus is having to come back and restore the brokenness. That's not what he, what he wants. It's not what he wanted in the garden. Do not live by the sword. And if your sword consists of your thumb, put it away. James 3.17 says this, but the wisdom from above is first pure, listen to this, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Is that not like a cup of cold water after a debate? Holy cow, the, the season we're in right now, James 3.17 just leaps off the page. How about Proverbs 17.13? If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Lamb to the slaughter, calm while possessing lion to kill power. I'll give you some inspirational reading. It's a book that's been in print for a long time. Fox's Book of Martyrs. These are brothers and sisters ahead of us because they're at their deathbed. They're about a martyr, someone who's killed for their faith. While being beaten, while being persecuted, they blessed. Man, it's not light reading before you go to bed. If you're prone to nightmares, maybe do it in the morning. But it's a really good book. It's powerful to see testimonies of others. All right, number two, and remember expectations. All who desire to live godly will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Doesn't say might be. Doesn't say maybe. Doesn't say if you're a varsity Christian, then you get persecuted. Doesn't say if you're an extrovert and speak a lot, you'll be persecuted. Everyone comes to the territory. You want to live a godly life? Here's part of the price tag. You will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. That just sounds like the really plain, awesome Christian life. Go to church. Go to Bible study. Open your Bible every day. Keep learning. Keep growing. Here's number three. Celebrate. Really, I mean this. Rejoice. Celebrate. Wear a party hat. Make goodie bags for your friends. Like when you're being persecuted, celebrate. You know why? It means people see Jesus in you. It means you're acting like Jesus enough that it's emanating from you. They can smell the stench of grace oozing out of your life. You can't even help it. Matthew 5, Jesus speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, God blesses you when people mock you. You don't like that sentence? Take it up with Jesus. He's the one preaching. God blesses you when people mock you. Just let this sit in your brain. God blesses me when people mock me. Therefore, I actually miss out on God's blessing if I live to avoid being mocked. Do you see that? God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil against you because you are my followers. Listen to this. Be happy about it. Be very glad. Sometimes we read the word blessed and it's like, bless you, blessed, blessed, blessed. We don't even know what it means anymore. This is the New Living Translation. Be happy about it. Be very glad. Party hat, cupcakes, hey, 
Let's have a party. I'm being persecuted. They're lying about me. I'm being slandered on Instagram. Man, they must see Jesus in you. All right, number four, payback cursing with blessing. Oh, we live in a payback society, don't we? Everyone's in debt, but they're all conscious of paying back everyone. People get in Twitter battles. And it's just psychotic. First Peter 3. Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted. Attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, here's the principle, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you this blessing. Closing your mouth allows you to have an open heart. Not responding right away. Closing your mouth, closing your phone maybe, I don't know. Closing your app allows you to have an open heart, to sympathize with them, to get along with them, to be merciful to them, to think, Jesus, how do you want me to respond in this situation? If you pay people back with a blessing, get some CPR training and know how to use an, an, an IED because people will have a heart attack. Isn't that true? Like they're going to come at you with reviling and scandalous words and all these things, and you, from sincerity, I'm really good at being snarky back with my compliments. That's my special worldly gift that I have to kill. But if you pay back with genuine blessing, man, again, be ready. Know where 911 is on your speed dial. Here's number four. I mean, we already did number four. Here's number five. Give yourself to good. Give yourself to good. Do right in the right way for the right reasons. Moving on in 1 Peter 3.18. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good. If you live in the Bay Area, you should stop there and go, uh, a lot of people. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous to do what is good? A ton of people. Like most people that I bump into. Read on. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Do you see a theme here? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with what? You know it. Gentleness and respect. Diane, you're a Jehovah's Witness. I'm a Christian. Hey, with gentleness and respect, can I practice something on you? Let me just share with you. Let me try to get out what's inside of me. Be ready for those opportunities. They abound right now. Do it with gentleness and respect. Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, again, just set your expectation. When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. Church, I am confident you can do this. Not because you're so amazing. That's Peter thinking, right? I've got this. I'll go to prison. I'll die. I don't know him. Sorry, servant girl. That's Peter thinking. I'm confident you can do this, not because you're such amazing people in and of yourselves. I'm confident you can do this because of who lives inside of you. 
the Spirit of Jesus, the Helper, the, the one who will call to your mind not only the truth, uh, don't just be truthful, be helpful. Here's how to be helpful with this truth. Not, boom, here's some truth for you. Here's how to be helpful with this truth. If any of you are experiencing mocking and taunting and beating and legal charges right now, remember Jesus. Remember God's love. Remember the fruit of what came from Jesus doing this kind of living, a harvest of good. Romans 8 says, who is there to separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What will we fill in on today's thing? Or teasing or name calling or misinformation or slander, right? Whatever might be there. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Return to God's love. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. That's a lot. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. We have the band come on up. John 15 talks a lot about abiding in Jesus Christ and living side by side with just living in the love of God is the warning. The whole second half of the chapter is a warning that starts this way. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, they'd receive you, but you're not. You're of me. So they're going to treat you the way they treated me. And the chapter closes with this. I have sent a helper to you. When I go away, a helper is coming. Church, close your mouth and open your heart. Only then will you be ready to open your mouth. The last step in this is to be like Christ and open your mouth, but only after you have first closed it and opened your heart.